Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, let me pray for us before we begin. Father, we ask now uh, that you'd meet us all um, in the places where we are this morning. Uh, those of us who feel really uh, close to you and near to you, ready to hear from you. Those of us who feel far from you um, because we have been running away or because you seem distant. Those of us who have faith, those of us who don't. Father, use this word that we believe is alive um, to meet us with the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Our cultural institutions are facing a moment of trial. Our cultural institutions are facing a moment of trial. Uh, that is the first sentence of an open letter uh, that's going to be published in the print edition of Harper's Magazine in October. My guess is that at least some of you uh, have read it. It's been making the rounds uh, online already. This open letter was signed by a wide range of uh, professors and artists and uh, writers from all kinds of different backgrounds, people like Malcolm Gladwell and Gloria Steinem and David Brooks and J.K. Rowling and Wynton Marsalis. And uh, in this open letter, these folks talk about the, the current state of our public discourse. And they decry uh, what they call a new set of moral attitudes and a new set of political uh, commitments that tend to weaken our norms of open debate and our toleration of differences uh, in favor of an ideological conformity. And the, the people who signed on to this letter make the argument that that censoring, that movement towards an ideological conformity is not only coming from the right, it is coming from the left as well. Andrew Sullivan, in an essay that he penned last month uh, called, Is There Still Room for Debate? He lamented the loss of a culture that, as he put it, delights in being wrong sometimes so that we can figure out what's right. I probably don't need to belabor this because we see this all around us, almost everywhere we look. Even if we don't have the words to describe what it is that we're seeing, we know that it's true. Conversation in our culture, disagreement in our culture has become something like a moral binary blood sport. Uh, shame and fear and bullying have moved to the center of our national conversation and to the center of our local ones too, as we have seen over the last week. We see it everywhere we turn. And sadly, the church has often played a part in this, and so it is us. It's the church that needs to call this as we see it. Whatever the source of this uh, change is, whatever the source of this cultural moment is, this, this, this passion to be right, this passion to silence dissent by steamrolling other people, it is a denial of a fundamental Christian principle. It is a failure to love. As we uh, just heard in the New Testament lesson, love is patient and kind. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And so, church, I need to learn this again. <laughs> and I think we need to learn this again. 
And there is no one uh, better to teach us about this than Jesus. And so here's what we're going to do for the next few weeks. We're going to look at places in the Gospels where Jesus argues with people. And we're going to see that sometimes Jesus brings the disagreement up. Other times people bring their disagreement to Jesus. And we're going to do this to learn from him in order to see what's important to Jesus, in order to see how he argues, and in order to see how he treats the women and men that he is talking to. So we're going to start this morning with a story from Luke's gospel. I'm going to read Luke 7, uh, verses 36 through 50 for us. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. So the setup for this story is pretty great. Jesus gets invited to a Pharisee's house for dinner. Uh, The Pharisees were an extremely influential pressure group in the first century. Jesus has lots of interactions with them throughout his life. And those interactions, not always, but are usually centered uh, around their insistence on a certain strain of moral purity at all costs. Uh, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but the Pharisees insisted on an ideological conformity. Uh, to their notions of morality. And uh, for them, shame, and in some cases, violence, in order to press this conformity, um, those things were not uh, out of bounds for them. (laughs) 
So there's almost no chance that this dinner party is going to go off without some sparks flying. And as if on cue, Luke says, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner entered the house and stood behind Jesus at his feet. Now Luke's description of her as a woman of the city is a very precise way of describing the nature of this woman's life, the nature of her sin. It doesn't take too much imagination to know precisely what he means. She's notorious. That this would have been uh, a shock, that this would have been an intense moment for everyone in the room, that's an understatement. But then Luke describes in very careful, very intimate detail what happens next. She's come with a flask of ointment, so we know that she's there to anoint Jesus in some way, but before she can even get to doing that, she comes undone at the sight of Jesus. And she begins to weep, and she lets her tears fall on Jesus' feet. And then she reaches up, and she does what no respectable woman in the first century would ever do in public. She uncovers her head, and she lets down her hair. And she lets her hair fall on Jesus' feet, and she wipes his feet with her hair, wet with her tears. She kisses Jesus' feet again and again. And then finally, she's able to come to do what she had come to do. She anoints his feet with the ointment that she brought. Now, here's what you need to know. By first century standards, I mean, to say nothing at all of a Pharisee's standards, this is a scandal. And Jesus does absolutely nothing to stop it. And so this is where the argument begins. Even if Simon, the Pharisee whose house they're in, doesn't know uh, that he is about to start this argument, he thinks to himself, there is no way that Jesus is a prophet. Because if Jesus was a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. If Jesus was a prophet, he would have guarded his purity and his reputation. He would have guarded my purity and my reputation by kicking her out of the house. Simon thinks that he has kept this to himself, of course. That's the irony of being certain that Jesus isn't a prophet when he is. And Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking, and so he turns to Simon and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. (laughs) Simon has no idea yet. There's no way he could possibly know in this moment, but that is the most gracious invitation he will ever hear in his life. See, when Simon looked at that woman, All Simon could see was wrong. When Simon looked at that woman, all he could see was her past. What she had done. Who she had been. And church, this is the the first thing that I want us to see and learn from Jesus about how he argues. Because he doesn't look at Simon the way that Simon had looked at that woman. He looks at Simon, and instead of seeing Simon's past and who he had been, 
and what he had done. He sees Simon's present, and he sees the Simon who could be, the Simon he could become. He graciously gives Simon the space to be wrong in order to figure out what's really right. And I guess I just have to ask, what if we argued that way with one another? What if we disagreed that way with anyone? You know, what if no matter how passionately we were certain we were right, we could graciously give space to other people to be wrong in order that maybe they would figure out what's right? I mean, I've had people do that to me in my life. I hope you've had people do that to you in your life. I've had people give me the room and the space to be wrong, to be able to figure things out. And it's, it's not too dramatic to say those moments have changed the course of my life because that's what love does. So Jesus begins with him, not, not with finger-wagging and not with scolding. Uh, he begins with a story about two guys who owed money to a moneylender. One of them owed more than the other, um, but here's at least half of the point. <laughs> Neither of those guys could pay. I can't overstate how important that detail is to the story. They are both insolvent. They are both at the end of their rope. And the moneylender cancels both of their debts. So Jesus asks Simon, which of them is going to love him more? And the answer is obvious. But however tentatively, Simon says, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And that's it. That's the space <laughs> that Simon needed in order to be able to hear what Jesus says next. Jesus says, listen, Simon, when I came into your home, you didn't wash my feet. But she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Simon, when I came into your house, you didn't greet me with a kiss, but since I've been here, she hasn't stopped kissing me. Simon, when I, when I got to your house, you didn't even give me the cheap olive oil for my head, but she has anointed my feet with this expensive ointment. Now listen, if the point was to make Simon realize how discourteous he had been, right? If the point was to make Simon feel ashamed over what he had done, the conversation would end right there. If this moment was about Jesus being right and making Simon realize that he had been wrong, this conversation would have ended right there. But this is not about making Simon feel ashamed. This is about Jesus seeing Simon as he is. It's about Jesus seeing Simon as he could be. Everything Everything in this story leads to this place, and we should not be mistaken. It is all about Simon. And these two sentences that Jesus says, these are the sentences that Jesus wants Simon to hear. <laughs> Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. 
Jesus is saying first that this, this great exuberant act of love uh, is evidence. It's evidence. What this woman has done is evidence that her sins have been forgiven, that she's heard this invitation to follow Jesus, and she's left this old way of life, and she's followed after him in faith. That's why Jesus tells her at the end of the story, your faith has saved you. <laughs> Go in peace. But this, this is where the story that Jesus told about those two guys who owed money, this is where that story is meant to land. She may be an accomplished sinner, Simon, but you're an accomplished moral scold. And Simon, where has your misplaced angry moralism gotten you. You're just as insolvent as she ever was. You've got no currency to pay back your debt. And church, this is an incredible, awesome mercy to Simon. And it's an incredible, awesome mercy to us if we will be honest. Because if Simon sees this clearly, if Simon can find his place in that story that Jesus told and his place in his own house that day, if he can see his place clearly, he is then at the beginning of grace. He is finally able to hear this good news that Jesus had come to announce and embody and accomplish through his cross and death and resurrection and ascension. Simon, if he could find his place, if he could hear this story, Simon would finally be at the place where he could accept the grace of forgiveness and walk into a whole new way of life. Old Simon could be made new. And this is what matters to Jesus. Simon matters to Jesus. And so his love for Simon makes him take up the argument with him, not in order to make him feel ashamed, not to silence him, not to bully him. He is arguing for the life of the Simon who could be. The Simon who could be forgiven and made new. So I hope, church, that we will always be learning to argue like Jesus, with an eye towards those uh, that we are uh, talking with and disagreeing with, with an eye of love. And I think that will begin, I think we will be able to argue like Jesus. We will begin to take on his way, if we're honest enough to admit that we're all broke, <laughs> that we're all insolvent and at the end of our ropes, accomplished sinners, accomplished moralists, the left, the right, everywhere in between. We're all at the end of our rope and we don't have the currency to pay back our debt. But Jesus in love has stepped in and taken our place so that we can be forgiven. And I'm telling you, people who believe that, people who believe that that's true, that I didn't have anything, but Jesus gave me everything. People who really believe that are free. 
They're free to engage and free to love those around them with the same kind of exuberant, surprising, disruptive grace that they have been shown. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that as we, uh, as we think about this word uh, that we have heard, that we've read, that we've talked about, that you would be gracious enough by your Holy Spirit to have us hear our own name and to hear you say, I have something to say to you, <laughs> and that we would listen. Father, make us be people who believe <laughs> that we had nothing, that we were insolvent and at the end of our rope, and Jesus in grace gave us everything. Father, do this so that we would be changed. Do this so that we, we could grow up and mature in our faith, and do this so that we could then turn and engage everyone around us with that same kind of love, that same kind of disruptive, surprising love. Father, do this for our good and for the good of this broken world. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.